Okay. Well, like I said, we're wrapping up uh, this section of church history. So this section's getting us to the 1400s. And uh, what I want to do tonight is really just look at the last uh, 100 or two years of this section. So 13 to 1400s is kind of where we'll, we'll camp, not in any particular order. Um, but I want to mainly look at the things that contributed to the, to the Protestant Reformation, which we'll look at more specifically next time around here in a couple of weeks. Um, but the Reformation, like everything else, didn't just happen like in an, in an instant or overnight. There were factors that contributed to it. There were things that, that actually led to it. And uh, those things really began to happen in the 13 and 1400s. And there's a, there's a lot of things. I'm try, I don't want to be overly simplistic because I'm sure things are more complicated than, than just a, a simple checklist of things. But I think there's uh, at least five major contributors to uh, the lead up to the Reformation. And, and, those, and we'll just look at each of those, and some we'll look at more detail, and some we'll go quickly through. Um, but I think there's five things. The first is we start to see a decline in the papacy, um, the decline of the papal office, the pope. Uh, it gets pretty wild um, in the 13 and 1400s for the office of the pope, and that starts to erode um, some, some trust and, and people's confidence in that office. And so we'll talk about uh, at least one of the events that led to that. <clears throat> We're also going to look at a pandemic that happened during this time period in Europe um, that also contributed. And we'll talk about not just what, what the, the pandemic was, but also why that happened to lead to Reformation talks. Uh, the third thing will be questioning of the Catholic doctrines. Uh, at this point, people start thinking about what the Catholic Church believes, and there were some characters and figures in the 13-1400s that started to question some of the things that had just been accepted as truth, and they started looking at their Bibles and going, hmm, not sure about that. So that started happening early on uh, in, in this time period before the Reformation. And then uh, there was, uh, fourthly, a technological innovation that took place during this time. Actually, a number of technological innovations during this time, but there was one specific one that we'll look at tonight. And then um, the fifth thing will be a new philosophy of, of understanding humanity that started to emerge and develop during this time. So those are the five things. And again, like I said, we'll, we'll look at all of these in, uh, in succession, but some we'll spend a little more time on and some will go pretty quick. Um, but let's start with the, the first one, which is the decline of the papacy, the papal decline. Um, this is really starting to happen in the 14th and 15th century, so 1300s, 1400s. This was a really tumultuous time for, for the Roman Catholic Church. There was widespread corruption at this point because the, the Pope had really, like we said last week, really took a lot of uh, power and, uh, and influence in, in the whole thing, and all of this gets mixed together and into the Holy Roman Empire and the states of, of Europe are all kind of in, uh, in allegiance to the, the church, and so the pope has this outsized authority. Uh, so that leads to corruption, just by kind of the nature of it all. Um, part of that corruption was the practice of simony, which um, the word simony comes from the book of Acts. Uh, I'm trying to remember if it was chapter 4, 5, 6, somewhere, somewhere earlier on in, in Acts. We preached through this story already. Um, but basically, there was Simon the magician who meets Simon Peter um, and sees Peter do this miraculous thing. And then the Holy Spirit comes down uh, upon people. And Simon the magician says, Peter, I'm gonna, I want to offer you money to give me this power. And from that, he gets rebuked and all these things. But the idea of simony, as it developed in the Middle Ages, is... Um, basically where somebody would purchase their way into a church position. So to be at this point in time, because the, the church is the, the, the center of power, if you could get yourself into a privileged position in the church, like as a bishop uh, or something like that, a, you know, a higher up position, you would live a very comfortable, wealthy, happy life. And so the wealthier people 
seeing that as an opportunity to have money would purchase their way into positions in the church, which um, of course is not a great way to uh, work your way uh, into that, right? You, it, so it stopped being about character. It stopped being about calling. It stopped being about biblical qualifications in any way. It was just, I'm going to buy my ticket to this. And so that became known as simony. Uh, there were also taxation issues during this time. <clears throat> so basically you had Europe went through all that t- tumultuous stuff with the Crusades and uh, all the things that we talked about last week, which basically broke the, the Euro- Europe into a number of city-states and countries and kind of divvied everything up so everybody's paying taxes to their their local you know local people their nation but then they're also sending taxes to rome and that starts to irk people uh having to pay all these extra taxes and then the the final thing kind of the nail on the head for the papal decline is what's called the western schism so we looked at uh, the Great Schism, last week I think it was, <clears throat> all this blurs together, but the, the Great Schism was the split between the East and the West. Uh, the Western Church became the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Eastern part of the Roman Empire split and became the Eastern Orthodox, also Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox, depending on where you lived in the Eastern portion of the, of the um, Byzantine Empire. But there was that split between the East and the West. Well, now we're just focusing on the West. The Roman Catholic Church now in the 1400s, late 13 to early 1400s, has a Western schism. And so we'll talk through how that looks. Um, The Western schism, it's called the Papal Schism as well, uh, was a split in the Roman Catholic Church that lasted from 1378 to 1417. And basically during this time, here's what's happening. Um, there, There were two guys simultaneously claiming to be the true pope. So you have rival popes. And then eventually you get a third pope in there, and then there's three popes, and it's all very confusing. Um, it gets, it's, it's a real complicated thing, actually, because there's just so many moving parts. I, I'm like, how do I distill this in a, any simple way? Because it's hard to wrap my head around it. But um, basically this was all driven by politics, not by theological disagreement. So the East-West schism had a lot of factors, which we talked about, but there were definitely theological factors between the East and the West that split them. Uh, Maybe not entirely theological, because we talked about language differences and geographic differences, but theology played a role. In the Western schism, it really wasn't theology. It was, it was the the dividing line was national lines. Um, So at the end of the day, the schism gets settled by a, a council called the Council of Constance, uh, which happened between 1414 and 1418. Um, but for a time, there were these three rival claims to the papal throne, um, which naturally damages the, the reputation of the office. Um, what happens is that the schism uh, in the Western Roman Church resulted from the return of the papacy to Rome under Gregory XI in 1377, ending what's known as the uh, Avignon. I'm, not, I'm really bad at pronouncing, uh, pronouncing French names, French words. But it's basically they had moved the papacy to France uh, in the earlier time, about for about 70 years before it moved back to Rome. So in like 1307 or so, roughly, they moved the, the Pope's kind of station, uh, like, like headquarters from Rome to France. Avignon is a is a city there, and that and over that time, over the seventy years that it was in France, uh, things really started to become corrupt. There was a lot of reputation for corruption, and it started to estrange parts of Christendom. Uh, there were at, there were people looking at this, going, "This is this is kind of getting bad out here," <clears throat> and a lot of that had to do with perceptions uh, about. French influence to the to the Pope, Pope uh, papal office and his efforts. So you know the French have always had kind of a, a interesting reputation in the world, and they still do. But um, they they were not seen like in a positive light in in this time, and they saw they were seen as like uh, really corrupting the the Pope. And so at the end of the day, uh, this seventy years that the Pope was located in France. Um, led to extension of power, um, more patronage, which is like 
people buying their way into the church and and people getting sponsored to be in the church. And then there was an increase in revenues to the church and all these things. Uh, But in 1377, the church moves uh, the Pope back to Rome. And that's one of the main issues that leads to the schism. So now you've got this divide between uh, people who think it should be in France, people who think it should be in Italy. And uh, whoops. shortly after um, the return of the papal residence to Rome, the Archbishop of Bari, uh, Bari was elected pope and was called, his name was Urban VI. And he was elected because of riots that the Roman populace demanded a Roman or at least an Italian pope. So for about 70 or so years, every pope that's, that came and went was not from Italy, was not from Rome. And there was a contingency of, of, the, uh, of the Christendom at that time that felt like no, the, like we all started in Rome. It should be a Roman or an Italian guy being in charge. And there's riots and all these things are happening, uh, kind of civil unrest. <clears throat> and so the, the council of uh, cardinals who elected the pope decided to elect an Italian Roman guy to kind of put down all the unrest. Well, Urban VI proved to be really hostile towards the Council of Cardinals, uh, particularly the cardinals in France. He wanted to be a disruptor. He didn't like the establishment of the church at that time. Maybe sounds kind of familiar to the days we're living in, right? Uh, This guy starts to kind of disrupt everything, and the establishment dudes become really angry at him, uh, and they decide to elect a different pope. And they kind of just break away, and they elect this guy named Robert of Geneva, and they call him Clement VII. Um, and their claim is that the election of Urban VI was invalid because it was made under fear, it was made under duress, it was made because of these riots. So that shouldn't be the reason we pick a pope, which maybe is truth. You know, there's, there may be truth there, but they decide to pick a guy that is definitely more in their, maybe not in their pocket, but definitely more on their team. And so you've got that guy. So you have Urban the Sixth. Now you have Clement the Seventh, and Clement the Seventh is like, we're taking the church back to France, and he sets up shop in France. And now Urban the Sixth is in Rome, and these two guys are fighting it out, basically each claiming the other's invalid. And yeah, that's not a great situation. So this double election has uh, obviously disastrous effects on the church. Uh, the followers of the two popes were divided mainly along national lines. Um, and so the dual papacy fostered this political antagonism of the time. Uh, there, was, there were just people that had problems with each other, right? Just like today. Um, and so this became a spectacle. And uh, it, first of all, it was, just, it was a spectacle because they're, they're both screaming at each other. And it's just creating a lot of confusion for the people. Nobody knows who's actually the Pope. Nobody knows what's going on. There's these two guys. So uh, this conflict escalates from a church problem to a diplomatic problem. It ends up dividing Europe. And uh, the secular leaders of the nations, the, the kings and the leaders of these various nations, have to kind of choose which Pope they're gonna listen to and recognize. And so you've got it kind of split between, okay, so in, in one camp, you've got France, Aragon, Castile and Leon, Cyprus, Burgundy, Savoy, Naples, Scotland, and Wales all recognize the French guy, okay? But Denmark, England, Flanders, the Holy Roman Empire, Hungary, Ireland, Norway, Portugal, Poland, Sweden, uh, the Republic of Venice, and other city-states in Italy recognize the Roman claimant. So you've got Europe kind of going, taking sides. Each of these countries is going, where with that guy? Where with that guy? So this obviously has to be figured out pretty quickly here. There's religious division, but there's also global political issues here too. So in in an attempt to resolve the conflict, both popes were asked by the Council of Cardinals to resign. And a third pope, a guy named Alexander V, was elected. But surprise, surprise, neither of those popes decide to quit, right? They don't comply. 
They're like, no. We're, and of course they are, right? Because they're going to go, I'm, I was elected pope. And the other guy's like, I was elected pope too. And of course they're not going to let go of a sweet gig like being the pope and having all this money flow into you. So that is the issue. They're, they're sticking to their guns. Now there's a third guy who's claiming to be pope, and uh, his name is Alexander V. All right, so eventually uh, they convene this council of church leaders called uh, the Council of Constance in 1414. And the council elected yet another guy, Pope Martin V. I don't know what happened to Alexander V. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what I, I, It gets very confusing. But essentially, once they all decide to elect Martin V in 1417, that more or less ends the schism. Everybody pretty much at this, at this uh, council was like, we're sticking with the guy we pick here, okay? We're just going to not recognize the other guys. We're going to call them false popes and uh, whatever. Whatever they do, they do, but we're going to take this back. So there were still people who had a, you know, had a, um, kind of were siding with these other dudes. Uh, you had arch, archbishops that were loyal to the other popes. And so they ended up subsequently electing an anti-pope. I don't know why they call them anti-popes, probably because they weren't real popes. But Benedict uh, the 14th, uh, yeah, 14th, is that right? Another uh, simultaneously elected the anti-pope Clement VIII. Uh, but it really didn't go anywhere. And so the Western Schism was pretty much practically over. Clement VIII eventually does resign in 1429. And apparently he recognizes Martin V. So that, that's a cra- crazy situation. But all of that, obviously, just in explaining it, it's like, that's chaotic. Um, obviously, that does a lot of damage to the people's repu- uh, respect for the office. And it contributes to the future Reformation movement that would begin in earnest in the early 1500s. It starts to really chip away at what all of this was built to be and is this right and and so just seeing all the chaos around this was one of those things that that was used to open people's eyes to hmm, maybe this isn't really just about Jesus this is maybe about some other things and that's one of the main factors that helped lead to the reformation uh, although you know about a hundred years or so after that all happened so so that's that um we can keep rolling through here and just look at the the next thing of the five is the pandemic. Um, this pandemic was called, we call it the Black Death. Uh, you're probably, you've probably at least heard of the Black Death at some point. It's pretty well known, at least in terms of um, the name. But it was a pandemic that went through Europe, devastated Europe, uh, between 1347 and 1351, although it popped up at other times as well. Um, not quite as widespread in those other times, but this was really this period of 1347 to 51. These few years were really the the, the worst of it. But this pandemic took a, a proportionately greater toll of life than any other known epidemic or war up to that point in history. And estimates actually suggest uh, that nearly a third of the population of Europe was killed during this plague. Uh, so massive loss of life was happening during the Black Death. Um, this was thought to be kind of a combination of two plagues uh, simultaneously. Um, the bubonic plague, which you're probably familiar with that term too, and the pneumonic, uh, like pneumonia uh, plague. And so they, these were probably both spreading uh, simultaneously, which is why it was, it was as bad as it was. But the bubonic plague uh, doesn't spread directly from person to person. It's actually, you, you're exposed to it through rodent, um, being exposed to it through rats. And then, um, or if you have fleas, you can pass it from person to person through infected fleas. As a flea bites you, gets the disease, jumps to another person, and spreads the disease that way. Uh, the pneumonic plague... Uh, was highly contagious from person to person. It passed through droplets, coughs, and sneezes. So the, one of the main reasons why this spread so poorly in the Middle Ages is because of living conditions. Um, there was overcrowding in the cities, housing. Um, people were just packed in to the bigger cities. 
uh, at this point. And that just obviously encourages the spread of the disease. You obviously have places with very poor sanitation, um, especially in the cities. So that's creating a breeding ground for, for rodents and rats to carry the disease. Um, monasteries were also affected by this pretty poorly because they were in close proximity to each other in terms of living in the monastery. And monasteries had a lot of visitors passing through. So the, the monks were often quite, quite affected by this as well. Um, but yeah, the Black Death was, was something that uh, really devastated Europe. And one of the things that I think we can be very thankful for that helps contribute to uh, not having these things at the same degree is because we have indoor plumbing and we get our stuff out of here. And thank you, Nathan, for your service to our, to our country. So, uh, <laughs> that's, <laughs> uh, pre- appreciate all that. So, um, yeah, so that's what's happening, the, the pandemic. Now, how does that affect or lead to the Reformation? Well, there's a couple of contributing factors here. But the main one is that during this period of time, um, the, the idea of indulgences was starting to ramp up in the church in general. And indulgences is, is a, basically a concept that you've got to do good works. There's certain things you've got to do in order to ensure that you can get your ticket out of purgatory when you die. So purgatory is a doctrine that was started um, by Pope Gregory the Great way back in the day, um, early in the Middle Ages. And it essentially says that when you die, even as a Christian... You don't immediately go to heaven. You go to a place called purgatory because you have to have your sins purged. And if you don't do enough indulgences in life to kind of counterbalance your sins, you go to purgatory for, depending on how many sins you got to have purged, uh, will depend on how much time you spend there. And so once you're cleaned up enough in purgatory, then you make it into heaven. And that's, that's a Catholic doctrine that still, they still believe today. Um, obviously, as a Protestant, I very much disagree with purgatory. The Bible doesn't teach the doctrine at all. Uh, you'll never find it taught there. But this was, this was an idea that was very, very popular in the Middle Ages. And so, as people who were living during this black death um, were obviously very fearful to die. They, they knew that this, it was likely that they were going to die. Uh, they were surrounded by death all the time. And so the Catholic Church um, takes it upon themselves to start selling people indulgences uh, to people who were concerned that either a loved one who had died uh, young or themselves when they die would not be able to get out of purgatory for a very, very long time. Because if they die young, especially, then how, how would you have lived long enough to work your way into heaven and to cut down some of those sins through the indulgences? And so it's basically this idea that's rooted in the idea of salvation through works um, and that if you work hard enough in your life, you'll make it into heaven quicker. Um, but if you're too young when you die, you obviously don't have the opportunity to work your way through those indulgences. And so being able to buy them for you or someone you loved uh, was something that the people in the Middle Ages really embraced. And this was one of the really, probably the central issue for Martin Luther. Uh, Luther found the, the practice of indulgences, the idea of especially purchasing indulgences, to be incredibly unbiblical, and it is, um, and also just a huge point of corruption for the church. And so one of the main things in Martin Luther's 95 Theses, which we'll talk about in the next session, um, is, is on calling the church out against these indulgences. It was one of the central things. And that's because there was a guy around the same time as Luther named uh, Tetzel. He lived in Germany uh, from, uh, he was, I think he was alive from 1465 to 1519. Uh, and Luther um, did his uh, 95 Thesis in 1517. So he died just a couple years after Luther started to question this stuff. But basically he was a Dominican friar and preacher who was really big on the indulgences. And there was a, there's a little saying that, that became attributed to him that says, as soon as the gold in the casket which is an offering box. As soon as the gold in the casket rings, the rescued soul to heaven springs. 
And the idea is you throw your gold in the box and the loved one that you're buying that indulgence for pops out of purgatory and he's right in heaven. And isn't that great? And so that's, this was all really an opportunistic thing for the church to make more money. And uh, Luther called that out. And he's, he's recognizing that the church is manipulating people, scared people, people legitimately afraid for their lives and for their loved ones. Uh, and obviously that's all wrapped up in bad theology too. But then the idea is uh, let's, let's manipulate these scared and sad people and give, get them to give us money. And then we'll just give them some assurances that that loved one is going to pop right out of purgatory and get into heaven. And um, all of that was kind of wrapped up in the pandemic because pe- death was really a prominent issue in front of people's faces at that time. And so uh, clearly like just no medical stuff at all, but yeah. So there would have been highly uneducated at this time as well, right? Oh yeah. No written yeah. languages or some with the educated. Yeah, the educated could read, but most were illiterate. Yeah, yep, for sure. So, and there weren't very many uh, translations, if any, uh, in languages people could actually read if they could read, unless you knew Latin or Greek or Hebrew. So yeah, there, there was a huge amount of ignorance in the, in the people, for sure, the average person. Uh, okay, third thing we're getting to uh, f- leading up to the Reformation during the 13-1400s is the questioning of Catholic doctrine. So this was a factor that um, there were a number of men uh, during this time who were starting to ask these questions, so certain questions, uh, but not only about the practices of the church, because People have been questioning the practices of the Catholic Church since Constantine, right? Remember the monastic movement was a whole uh, move away from how the church was functionally uh, doing its thing. And there was a lot of people throughout history that have had problems with how the church expresses itself in the practice. Um, But not many questions up to the point of the 13-1400s were surrounding the doctrine of the church. There weren't a lot of people out there in the early Middle Ages who were questioning what it believed or taught but by this time by the late middle ages you start to see several people um, contribute to this and start to ask some questions and the one I want to focus on is John Wycliffe Uh, he was probably the most influential of of all these people although that's debatable obviously but John Wycliffe was really one of the early guys to kind of step out and ask some some hard questions Um, he was born in England sometime around 1320, but we don't really know anything about his early life. Um, he's, you know, he, but he, they guess he was born sometime in that time frame based on, I think, when he died and all that. But he was in England, and he spent most of his career teaching at Oxford. Uh, he was very, became very famous as a teacher at Oxford for being very logical, thinking through things, being able to explain things. Uh, and so he started to build kind of a reputation of just as people would go to Oxford and hear him teach. And then eventually he leaves Oxford for a while. He serves the British crown as a diplomat for them for some time. But eventually he goes back to Oxford. Um, but basically here's what is what's happening with, with Wycliffe. First, he, he celebrated the Western Schism. He was very excited about this because he believed it would be the thing that would take down the papacy. And it hasn't exactly taken down the papacy, but it was definitely, like we said, a contributing factor to the Reformation. But he believed that with all this chaos, with all these popes and the three popes and all the rival things, he thought this is great because this thing, this institution is way, way out of control and um, it needs to be brought down. And so that was his view. And that's obviously not going to land well, right? But his view was that leadership should be characterized by the example of Christ who came to serve and not be served. And he saw the papacy of his day as a complete failure in that regard, that they were there to be served and to get rich and to have the people serve them and not to serve as Christ served. And so he did actually, he started to look at the Bible and he was highly educated so he could read it in the original languages. And he started to read the Bible and go, well, if there are certain markers of the Christian life that points to someone being a Christian. Although obviously we know, can't judge fully by the outward appearance. We know that God knows the heart. God knows who are his. It's hard for us to make perfect judgments on this. 
But there are things, Jesus says, that you will know uh, by that you're my disciple by how you love one another. There are certain markers of external evidence that we're Christians. And he started to look at the Pope in his day and go, I don't know which of the three he was looking at, but he was looking at the Pope and he was going, well, that guy, based off how he's living his life, doesn't seem to be marked by Christ. And so he basically says, the Pope's not a Christian. <laughs> Just like, whoa, that's, that's tough, right? He's, he's going out there and talking about how he doesn't think the Pope is a true saved man. And, and he's not truly been born again. And obviously that does not land well. So um, he, he starts to, well, he ends up getting excommunicated uh, and, and uh, declared a heretic. But he was one of the uh, few voices early on uh, crying out in the wilderness of the Middle Ages that the scriptures are the key to understanding what God wills, not the Pope's authority. So he starts questioning the Pope's authority and starts pointing us to the Bible as our authority. And Wycliffe believed that regular Christians should have access to the Bible and be able to read it in their own language so that they're not dependent upon the Pope to tell them what God says. Now, uh, he never lived to see the Bible translated into English, but after his death, his followers made sure to translate the Bible into English. So the first English translation of the Bible is the Wycliffe Bible. They called it that in his honor, um, though he didn't translate it uh, entirely. But they, his followers were really convinced that he was right about this. And so they translated it so that the people in England could read it in their own language. Now, I don't have a copy of Wycliffe's Bible. I have a copy of Tyndale's Bible in my office. And Tyndale was an early translator. And I just looked at it today and I was like, this is almost unreadable because the English of the 1300s is not English today. Like we, spells diff, everything's spelled different. It's, It's quite interesting. But but they, so if you were to ever find a copy of Wycliffe's Bible, you probably wouldn't be able to read much of it or it'd be very difficult to trudge through it because uh, the King James was a pretty modern translation comparatively to that. Uh, King James was translated in, what, 1611 or something like that, somewhere around there. So a couple hundred years after Wycliffe's. But uh, so you have the questioning of the Pope's authority. You have the questioning of the Pope's salvation on top of that, uh, which which is not landing well. But the biggest thing, the most controversial thing, believe it or not, for, for Wycliffe, was the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation. And transubstantiation is the Catholic, still to this day, the Roman Catholic doctrine that the bread eaten at communion, at the mass, as they would call it, literally transforms into the body of Christ. That Christ is, the bread is Christ and Christ is the bread in that moment. That it transforms, it's transubstantiated into Christ. And so as you eat that bread, you are literally eating the body of Jesus. Um, That was another doctrine that Pope Gregory uh, developed in the early Middle Ages. Mm -hmm. It is also not found in scripture. And Wycliffe um, greatly disagreed with this. Although he still believed in a real presence of Christ in communion. He did believe that Christ was present as we, as we participate in this, but he did not believe that the bread transforms from bread into the body of Christ. And so that was really the issue that gets him excommunicated. And uh, they basically just declare him a heretic because he's questioning foundational doctrines of the Catholic Church. So... Uh, as he's excommunicated from the church, he's then forced to retire out of, out of um, Oxford. He's re- he retires in 1381, but he's, he's able to continue living. They didn't kill him, believe it or not. That's good news. Uh, so he kind of goes into retirement. He goes into a little, little parish, a little church somewhere, and just starts to write things and, and uh, just kind of gets out of the, the way. And he's, not, he's in England, so he's not really in the center of, of all the action at this point anyways. But as he continues to spread his views, um, he prints tracts, he, he writes these little short explanations of things, and he gets, gains a lot of followers. But because he died as a heretic, as the Roman Catholic Church calls him a heretic, we would call him a, a hero of the faith and from our perspective, but uh, because he dies a heretic and he dies excommunicated, after he dies, they bury him, and the Catholic Church comes 
comes back and exhumes his body, burns his bones, grinds it up, and throws it into a river. So he's not allowed to be uh, buried in an in a honorable way because of his position before the church. So that's fun. But there you go. Um, he's he's uh, dealt with, and that's, that's fine. He's in, a, he's in a happier place. He's not worried about what they do to his bones. But uh, Wycliffe and his ideas don't die with him. A guy named Jan uh, Hus uh, was, was heavily influenced by Wycliffe, and he, he learned under him in Oxford. He studied with him there, and he ends up bringing the teachings of Wycliffe to his native country of Bohemia, which is the Czech Republic uh, today is what we know that as. Uh, and then from there, John Huss and his followers really begin to shake some things up. And uh, actually, there ends up becoming a split. The, even before the Reformation, this little localized group in Bohemia ends up splitting from the Catholic Church and becomes its own church um, and completely separated because of Jan Hus. And, but all of that can be traced really to the teachings of Wycliffe. And then Jan Hus continues to lead the way through Europe. So these are all kind of a uh, hundred or so years before the Reformation and the cracks are starting to show. So that's, that's the, I think we're on the third, third issue here, the, the questioning of Catholic doctrine. Uh, the fourth thing we'll look at tonight is a technological innovation that really started to shake things up for the Reformation and it's called the printing press. So this was a huge contributing factor to the Reformation uh, and it was through the development of Gutenberg's printing press. And he developed this uh, technology around 1440. And uh, there were other forms of printing presses before this, but they were very slow, very inefficient. And beyond that, there, it was almost easier to just handwrite everything. Uh, but Gutenberg's innovation to the printing press made it very quick, like light speed comparatively to what they had before, where they could uh, develop uh, books very quickly, disseminate that information very cheaply and quickly. And this allowed for both the Bible, which is the first book that was printed on Gutenberg's printing press, uh, and then eventually Luther and the other reformers to write the, the things that started to influence people around Europe with the teachings of the Reformation. So we... Um, I, I want to give that we're not going to spend much time on this, but I just wanted to give a little bit of credit where credit's due here is that there's a lot of things that are coming together simultaneously that help lead the way and pave the way for the Reformation. And this new technology is one of those factors that uh, the, the, the uh, re reformers really like take, pick up on and go, this is something we can use. And they start to print books and uh, print Bibles, and they started, you know, both Luther and John Calvin, and uh, I think uh, Tyndale up in, up in um, England, they all were respectively translating the Bible in their native languages. So Luther translates the Bible into German, because he's in Germany, and Luther translates it into French, and, and Tyndale translates it into English, and then they start using the printing press and just cranking these Bibles out so that the people in, the, in their respective areas can read the scriptures for themselves. So printing press was a big deal there. But we'll look at one more thing, uh, which is the Renaissance. And this was uh, really a whole change in thinking and how the culture of the time thought about pretty much everything started to kind of change at this time. And, and I'll just walk you through what the Renaissance is um, kind of historically, and then we'll, I'll try to tie this into how it uh, in fact, uh, impacts the Reformation. Uh, but the Renaissance was a movement that was dedicated initially to the rediscovery and use of classical learning, which means knowledge and attitudes from ancient Greek and Roman eras. Uh, the word Renaissance is, I think, French meaning rebirth, and Renaissance thinkers believed that the period between themselves and the fall of Rome. So they were looking back over the course of history and going, when Rome fell and where we are now, um, they called that the Middle Ages. And they started to see, looking back, a real decline in cultural achievement, advancement, education, a lot of factors that they were unhappy about. And they wanted to rediscover 
the ancient knowledge and the ancient learning from before the fall of Rome. So they go back to Aristotle and Plato and all of these ancient uh, philosophers, and they start to reintroduce these things uh, into, into their day and start to ask some of these questions. And so it it's really starts to open the door for going back to original sources, which ultimately leads to going back to the original Greek and Hebrew of the Bible and then translating them from there, rather than depending on Latin translations where you're translating off of a translation off of a translation, right? You go back to the original sources. So that's part of what the Renaissance uh, was doing. Originating, uh, it's a, it originated in Italy, uh, but ev- eventually it spread across Europe. And there were a lot of factors that led to the spread across Europe. Trade, as people go, travel throughout Europe in, in business. Uh, marriage, as people move to be with their, their new spouses. Diplomats, scholars, even military invasions uh, all aid the circulations of the Renaissance. And um, historians now tend to break the Renaissance up into geographic groups. So there's categories like the Italian Renaissance and the English Renaissance and Northern Renaissance, which was a whole composite of several countries. But either way, uh, this, this started in Italy, moved out from there. And uh, as you probably know, the, the Renaissance movement had a, its hands in a lot of things. There was movements of architecture, uh, literature, poetry, drama, music, metals, textiles, furniture, uh, probably most famously it's art, right? If you have ever heard of the Mona Lisa or the Statue of David or the Sistine Chapel, all of that is Renaissance art. Um, and so creative endeavors became viewed as a form of knowledge and achievement, not just decoration. Art was now based on the observations of the real world, Uh, applying mathematics and optics to achieve more advanced uh, effects like perspective. Uh, Painting, sculptures, and other art forms uh, flourished as new talents took up the creation of masterpieces and enjoying art became seen as the mark of cultured individuals. Um, So the, the idea of art really took off during the Renaissance. But for our purposes, since this is not history of the Renaissance, Uh, It's more of how does this relate to Christianity? How does this affect the Reformation? Um, I think the most significant thing that came out of the Renaissance is a new philosophical way of looking at the world that we would call today humanism. And humanism uh, is an intellectual approach, a way of looking at the world intellectually that challenges the, the previous medieval thinking Whereas in the medieval years, in the Middle Ages, people thought about themselves in the context of being a a creature made by God. And um, people were seen largely as um, kind of just, you're either in the church or you're not in the church. And so you're either this collective group of people that God uh, cares about as the collective, but not individually. And that started to change during the Renaissance, where people started to see the individual uh, over the... The, the group of religious um, adherents. And so humanist thinkers implicitly and explicitly challenged the old Christian mindset. And they were advancing new intellectual mo- models behind the Renaissance. Um, but there were obviously tensions in this between the Catholic Church and uh, humanism. Um, and ultimately, humanistic uh, leanings um, led to partly led to the Reformation, and here's how that went down. Um, At its core, humanism is exactly what it sounds like. It takes the focus of uh, of humanity off of the creator and places it upon us. And this was a significant factor that has had both very negative uh, results and some positive results. The negative results is what we see today as our secular, atheistic way of looking at the world, that if, if we're humanists, we're going to stop considering the divine, we're going to look, look at ourselves, we're going to focus on ourselves, and so much of what we see in our modern way of thinking is rooted in humanism. But it did help pave the way in some regards for the Reformation, not because the Reformation focused its attention on humans versus God, but it challenged the status quo of the institutional church, And it helped people understand the need 
for individual salvation through Christ. So there is a ton to criticize about, the, about humanism. Uh, it, I don't think as a whole it's uh, a good thing. I, I think that we have a lot of, uh, we've seen a lot more negative than positive probably come out of humanistic worldviews. But the philosophy did make people think about their individuality, not just their collective. And so rather than seeing themselves as just tied to an institution, the reformers helped people as they started to think through these things and started to be swayed by the Renaissance humanistic view. They started to pivot that to, well, there's, there's the positive that you are a person that God has made and loves and that you as a person need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're not just secure because you belong to some institution. You need to trust in Jesus individually to forgive you of your sins. And obviously, from that point of view, yes and amen. We agree with that. That's, that's a good thing. Um, but obviously, there's the negative sides of humanism. If it's purely secular, if it's atheistic, uh, you know, we, we, want, we want to criticize those things about it. But the way that it led to the Reformation or helped lead the path there was the culture was already moving in that humanistic direction. And Luther and those guys basically were just able to understand the, the worldview in which people were, were living in and thinking through and then pivoting that to gospel message and gospel truth, which I think does point the way. I think there is biblical uh, evidence of individual humanity and that we we're not just some cogs in a institutional machine i think the bible is clear on that as well so the humanism did discover or rediscover basic truths about humanity but maybe has gone probably has gone too far uh in in a secular direction so that's the renaissance in a nutshell and that's a huge topic in and of itself but um but those five factors, um, the, the papal decline, the pandemic, technology, uh, these guys questioning the doctrines of the church, and then the Renaissance are really what help pave the way to the Reformation, which we'll obviously spend a lot more time next time in a couple weeks looking at more specifically and how that all went down. I know I've mentioned a couple things about Luther, but we'll get into way more of that um, as we get into that period of history. But as we close tonight, I really just want to tie a bow on all of this medieval stuff. So we've been in the period that's known as the medieval or Middle Ages, um, which takes place from, we started before fall of Rome at the beginning of this class, very quickly got to the fall of Rome, and since then we've been in the Middle Ages. And so I want to ask a question that I think is, is good for us to ponder. There is a concept um, about the Middle Ages, where we call them the Dark Ages, oftentimes, or you hear you hear that term quite a bit in our in our day and age. And the Middle Ages are often framed as this time of darkness and drudgery, and then the Renaissance comes, and the Renaissance is this birth of light and enlightenment and rebirth and all these things. And the question I want to ask us is, or just think through is, is that narrative actually true? It, were the dark ages actually dark? Um, and here's my, here's my answer. Like everything I've said here, I probably am very frustrating. But yes and no, right? Like there's, it's a mixed bag. It is a combination of there were aspects that were dark and there were aspects that weren't. But I think when we actually step out of just kind of the, the typical mentality of the Middle Ages and, oh, everybody was just miserable and everything was terrible and start to look at what was actually going on during this time period, I think we can have a greater appreciation for where we are now because a lot of the things we have now are rooted in the Middle Ages. Uh, there's a great book that I just read recently called The Air We Breathe uh, by Glenn uh, Scrivener is his name. And he, he talks through uh, how basically... Uh, the whole premise of the book is that we all uh, today seem to value love, compassion, kindness, um, these, these like modern day things. And he wrote this book to kind of show how Christianity is the root of all of those things, whether they're, they're acknowledged or not. And it's a great book. But in, there's, in one of his chapters, he talks about some of the key developments of the Middle Ages and how he's just trying to point the way to 
the things we value today are actually not um, are not like new. They came to us, passed down from the Middle Ages. So let me give you a few examples. He gives us five things, and I'll just point all five out real quick here. Uh, the first is technology. Um, labor-saving innovations were vital uh, in, the mid- in the medieval Europe, uh, and monasteries led the way for labor-saving innovations. So in the, in the pre-medieval times, in the Roman era, they relied on slaves to get things done. Uh, Aristotle and Plato called slaves living tools. And they had, a, they had a very different worldview than we do about the individual human, right? And, and so people were seen as just tools that could be used. And so slavery was rampant in, in the Roman era. But in the medieval times, it was actually the monks in the monasteries that began to actually work towards making mechanical tools, so that we don't have to be dependent on human beings to, to be enslaved so that these things can be accomplished. Um, so to replace the drudgery of human toil, uh, there were some great advancements during the Middle Ages. There were advancements in wind and water power, uh, sail technology, so that which eventually let Columbus go sail the seven seas, right, and discover America. All of that happened in the 1400s because... They, they've started to develop sails that could actually carry these ships far distances. There were developments in agronomy, which is um, basically farming, and they, they figured out how to do selective plant breeding during the Middle Ages. They figured out the three-field rotation system so you weren't destroying your, your soil with just one crop. Uh, they, discovered, they, they invented the heavy plow. Um, so there was great advancements in, in uh, agriculture, there was also uh, the invention of eyeglasses in the Middle Ages, and that was, became a crucial thing for people who became increasingly literate and were needing to read, and they were able to throw these glasses on and be able to read. And as a guy who's worn glasses since I was eight, I'm thankful for that, right? And um, that's something that, that came about because of the Middle Ages. And obviously all these things have increased and become better over time, but it all started back then. Another thing that developed during the Dark Ages, so to speak, was human rights. Uh, What emerged from the Middle Ages was a robust and unprecedented language of rights. And this was new. This was not something that the Romans had any concept of. Um, But from the very beginning of Christianity, Christians understood the need to help people. That was something that was clear even in the Roman times, in the early church. We saw in the first class of this that the Christians stepped in during the pandemics of Rome to help the sick. That was one of the factors that helped lead to the growth of the church in those early days. Um, Christians have always felt that obligation, but by the time of the Middle Ages, the church and the state were all kind of inter, uh, interconnected. And now there are church lawyers um, who are working on uh, helping the church understand what's called canon law, which is basically church law, um, and they started to enshrine in documentation the other side of the equation, not just the obligation or the need to help people, but also the idea of rights, that the wealthy don't just have a responsibility to the poor, though the Bible, I think, does teach that those who have wealth should use their wealth to help people, uh, but the poor also have human rights, which is a very brand new thing in the Middle Ages because up until that point, there was, there was either, you either had position and status and wealth or you were a slave and there was really no in-between. But in the Middle Ages, people started to recognize that every person, regardless of position, had rights. And so that eventually goes from church and spreads into civil laws as well. So if we value human rights, and I think we all do, um, we, we should be thankful for our medieval uh, dark ages, so to speak, predecessors. Another development was universities. One of the greatest gifts of the Middle Ages was the gift of education. And this began in monasteries, right, as people were welcome to come in and learn uh, the Bible through the monasteries. But it eventually grew into the university. <clears throat> and the goal of the university was not just the preservation of knowledge, but the innovation of uh, of the world and helping people take the next steps. 
And so by the 1200s, Bologna, Paris, Oxford, and Cambridge all had universities. And now today, they're like universal. Like you can probably throw a rock and almost hit a university in our day, right? They're everywhere. Uh, every state's got their own universities. Every, every place does, right? <clears throat> and, um, but it was really the original sentiment of Oxford's motto that inspired the rise of universities. It, Oxford's uh, motto is, God is my guiding light. And I don't think that they still really embrace that very much at Oxford, but that was how it was founded. And it was founded with the idea that God is our guide and he's our light. And, um, and so it's kind of funny when you look at those old universities, even the ones on the East Coast, the Ivy League, all of their mottos are Christian in some regard. regard. And of course, we've all passed by that as, um, as time has gone on and those things have been forgotten. But universities developed during the Middle Ages. Another development was parliaments. So in the Middle Ages, church lawyers were also busy applying theological concepts to political realities. And so basically how this tra- traces through is that if citizens are possessors of rights, as that started to be- become developed and that concept was rediscovered, then rulers, those in charge, could not be uh, thought to have unlimited power. So, the, so they started to see this contradiction of if humans have rights, everybody, regardless of class or status, then rulers can't have ultimate authority. And so instead, rulers were starting to be seen as ministers. And this is why in English society and much of Europe, most of the people who are in charge are called ministers, prime minister, or the, the, you know, these, these titles were given to them because that was the original concept. You're here to serve those that you are leading. And just in England, for example, the king's power uh, was limited via the Magna Carta. And the Magna Carta was written in 1215. Um, Magna Carta was actually the document that largely influenced uh, the Constitution of the United States. It was, it was a document that deeply impacted the, um, the founders of our country, although obviously they, they made their own individual tweaks to things, and, and it's not exactly a verbatim thing, but the Magna Carta was a hugely influential document that limited the power of the King of England back in the 1200s. So that's like firmly in the middle of the Middle Ages, and you're already seeing kings be brought down to some degree. Uh, later on in England, Parliament was established in 1275, and then Parliament was opened for commoners to serve in the House of Commons in 1295. And our, our system of, of government here is, a, is really a, a modified version of the English Parliament system. We have House of Representatives, which is functionally the House of Commons, uh, kind of a common person serving a very small district, relatively speaking. Then you have the House of Lords, which would be our Senate, is based off of that. Um, and then you have, of course, the judiciary, which, um, which is the, that branch. And then the king would be kind of akin to presidency or the executive branch. But either way, they, they obviously have some tweaks and nuance and differences. But the basic structure is, is built around that same idea, um, although... Hopefully, most of our people are elected, and that's maybe some of the difference there, um, at least when you get to their king and that kind of thing. He's not elected. But parliaments developed in the Middle Ages, and uh, that, I think, is a good thing to think about. All right, so with all those things, um, we are really the beneficiaries of what happened during the Middle Ages. Of course, we know things happen slowly over time. It's a process of trial and error, right? Nothing gets perfect, perfected in a moment. It takes time for the things that we understand today. It didn't immediately plop down out of thin air. It's been a development. But the seeds were planted in the Middle Ages. So there are some positive things that happened. But there are also um, some things that were not great, that that would be considered dark. And I think the primary thing, as we lead up to our next session, is looking at the spiritual darkness, the decline of the church in its, not in its power, but in its, in its moral authority. 
that the, the, the papacy was rampant with abuse. People were in the dark in many ways because they didn't have the scriptures. They couldn't read it for themselves. They weren't being taught the Bible. And uh, so there are, there are aspects of the Dark Ages that were dark, that needed to be reformed. And the Reformation comes along in the early 1500s, and the slogan of the Reformation became post tenebris lux, which is Latin for at light after darkness. And uh, that's, that's kind of how they looked at it and framed it as here the scriptures are being seen again and rediscovered and, and brought to the people, and all of that is... Uh, tremendously good so we'll get there uh, in a few weeks but one of the things as we as we just conclude tonight um, I want to remind us that things go in cycles uh, we may not we as we look at our own world now we may be discouraged about where things are we may be discouraged about the state of the church um, and I think there's reason to be discouraged in some regards at the same time, we need to remember that things are cyclical. And I just, just today I finished reading Second Chronicles uh, in the Old Testament. And I was struck by the, the end of Chronicles as just before the people, you know, several kings back before the people go into exile into Babylon. Um, there, was, there were a series of kings and there were terrible kings and then there were good kings. And there was one good king who would lead to a terrible king, and then that terrible king would lead to a good king. And there was this back and forth. And one of the primary examples that struck me was King Ahaz was described as just a horribly immoral man. He sacrificed some of his children uh, to the false gods. He put them through the fire. He was building, literally building idols for the people to worship, building the Baals, the balls or whatever you how you pronounce that false god and and he was just horribly immoral and and angered the lord he did not do what was right in god's eyes but then he dies and he passes leadership on to hezekiah his son and hezekiah undoes everything his dad did he tears down all these false idols he he lives a life that is honorable before the lord he restores and reforms worship uh, in the temple, he he does incredible things for, uh, I think Hezekiah served for 29 years. And during his reign, so much good happened. And then what happens? Hezekiah dies and the throne passed on to his son Manasseh, who literally undoes everything Hezekiah did. He he rebuilds all the junk. He he destroys everything again. He also sacrifices his children to, to false gods. He Manasseh is even worse than Ahaz, in, in, at least in how it's described in the scriptures, because he starts to, uh, to consult with uh, fortune tellers and mediums and necromancers. And it's just like even more evil is coming out of this guy than his grandfather, who was also incredibly evil. And, and then Manasseh dies. And Manasseh actually reigned for like 50 years, like twice as long as Hezekiah in God's providence and sovereignty. And, and all these years, he's leading the people astray. And then finally, Josiah, his son, takes the throne after Manasseh dies. And Josiah leads the people through the greatest season of reform in the Old Testament. He rediscover, they rediscover from the temple, they discover the law. And they start to read it and go, oh boy, we didn't do any of this. Uh, let's start doing this again. And there's this huge reform that happens again. But then Josiah dies and then... It just plunges back, and then God sends them into Babylon. And, um, and so I, I, all, I just say all that to say that if you're discouraged, um, we don't need to fret. God is working. He is in charge. He's going to continue to reform and mature his people. There are good things happening in every season, whether it's good or bad. There's, ne there's never absolute destitution. There are always people. That's what strikes me is that these horribly evil kings can raise sons who are actually good, godly kings. How is that possible? Aside from God being gracious and kind, right? And, so, and those good kings can raise sons that turn out to be horrible, horrible people. And so, again, we just need to trust the Lord. We may be, perhaps, in a season of spiritual drought. I see good, encouraging things in our day, too. But I, I also see, yeah, we're, in, we're maybe in some 
uh, a time where people don't know or understand or care about the Word of God as they did at other times. But we've got to keep our eye on the long view and, uh, and trust that the Lord will, until he returns, continue to save people and care for us. So let's hang in there, and we're going to see in the next session uh, how God begins to bring about Reformation and, um, and starts to help us move out of the Middle Ages into what we think of today. So that, with that, I'll pray for us, and then we can head home. Uh, Jesus, again, thank you for just the reminder and the, and the encouragement of your word as I uh, just reflect on what I read today about, about the kings uh, of Israel and Judah and this the darkness that existed in their time. And uh, yet you worked in it, you used it, and, and Lord, we don't know fully in our own time how to think about where we're at. And we don't know everything that you're doing. Uh, but we do trust that you are working in, in our lives and in our churches. And uh, we pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see and confidence in the sovereignty of, of, your, of your name and your son, Jesus. And we pray that you would give us uh, grace today as we go home and that we would be... Um, just thankful for all that you've done for us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.